Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Gus. I'm still trying to work out how many years ago it was that I came to Nottingham as a student. I think it's 18, which I think makes it longer in Nottingham uh, than my life in Stoke-on-Trent. So, uh, redemption, some might say. <laughs> there we go. We, um, we had an absolutely ace evening here um, Monday nights. We launched our um, leadership development course in Life of the Church. Um, 60 people in Church Life have been uh, nominated by uh, home group leaders and ministry leaders. Of, we, we believe in you and kind of want to uh, kind of, uh, yeah, just see you step in, into leadership in all manner of ways, uh, being supported by 40 different coaches across the life of the church. Baptism, uh, baptism is one of our priorities. Discipleship is also one of our priorities for the year. And so really great just to see kind of those relationships forming. And uh, Emily and Rosie uh, kicked, uh, kicked off the, the session looking at our identity in Christ and leading out of our identity. And uh, the evening for me was summed up by one guy who came to me, a friend of mine. He said, oh, JP, that, that evening last night didn't teach me anything about leadership, but it sure showed me where my identity was. And uh, I thought in my mind, wow, well, if you've learned that, you've learned the biggest lesson that you will ever know in leadership or discipleship or faith. So there we go. But um, that, that was good fun. Um, today, we're starting a new series, actually, a new teaching series, which will be in for the next uh, five weeks or so in the book of Esther in the Old Testament um, of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, that's everything before um, Jesus uh, was born. And uh, Esther, if you don't know the story, is the story of a Jewish woman uh, in the Persian Empire who becomes queen just as the, the evil advisor to the king, whose name is Haman, tries to wipe out the people of God and um, uh, along with uh, Esther's cousin Mordecai, who also uh, foils a separate plot in relation to trying to take the king out. Um, God uses um, the two of them to, to save his people, to take down the enemy, to celebrate the victory with a feast that uh, is still enjoyed uh, by Jews to this day. It's called Purim. Uh, it's still enjoyed uh, in, uh, across the world today. And um, I love the graphic that uh, Laura Aldridge, our graphic designer, has, uh, has put together. I mean, doesn't that look... In fact, Laura's here. Where are you? Here she is. Come on. Isn't this incredible? Just a beautiful thing. And um, the reason that we've included the tagline in that, the unexpected reversal, is because the, the story of Esther is full of unexpected reversals. It's almost panto-esque in its figures and in its redemptive plot, but it actually turns on one key question in Esther's own heart. And this is the question of which kingdom it is that she is going to live for. And actually, that question is still very live for us today. Which kingdom are we living for? Are we living for the kingdom of this world with all of its values and pleasures? And I'm not meaning like the UK. I mean kind of all that the world says is good. Or are we living for the kingdom of God? Andy referred to that very question in, in his testimony even. So we're going to jump straight into uh, Esther chapter 1. Um, if you haven't got by with you, the words are going to uh, come up on the screen. In fact, Desi has beaten me to it. They're already there. So here we go. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, I've been practicing that one all week, um, <laughs> It's worth saying, actually, if you are following along, so I'm reading from, from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Other versions um, have the name Xerxes there. That simply is his Greek name. That's what he's generally known by in history. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. This is for a Persian king, and so it's been translated into the different languages. In Hebrew, it sounds very much like the word for headache. So he's trying to give you at this early stage the idea that this guy is going to be a nightmare. This is King Headache. So King Headache... The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast 
for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. I've been practicing that one as well. Apparently, it's like a red stone with diamonds in it. I'd never heard of it before. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizthar, Harbana, Bigthar, and Abagthar, Zethar, and Carcass. I really should have got someone else to do the Bible reading today, shouldn't I? You know, maybe idea for the four o'clock service. Be warned. Um, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commands delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. I'm actually going to stop it there. And it says 2 at 22, but we're going to stop it there. Um, for a minute, we'll pick it up again in a bit. So how do you read a book like Esther um, in the Bible? Well, the starting point is that Esther tells a gospel story. Now, there's a, one of the commentators, Christopher Ash, who um, has two top tips for reading Esther, which I personally found very, very helpful. And his first one is this. Don't over-moralize the story of Esther. You see, it can be very tempting as we read passages like this and, and others to see the characters and try to play, as it were, the panto card. That is, to try and work out, are they a goodie or are they a baddie? But the difficulty is that we don't always know and the, the writer doesn't always tell us. So take Queen Vashti um, in this passage where uh, the king commanded her to, uh, to come that she might be displayed as this trophy before all the, uh, the, the, the people of the lands. And her response in refusing that and saying, no, you do not get to treat me like that is a very legitimate response in our culture, but a very offensive one in the culture of Esther chapter one. Likewise, in chapter two next week, we'll see how Esther becomes queen essentially by winning a sex contest as to who can most impress the king in bed. Absolutely despicable in our culture, acceptable in that culture. But there's a bigger problem, and that is that whereas the Bible has plenty of wisdom for life and explaining how things work and what's good and what's not, Actually, every time we see a so-called goodie and say that we too are meant to be uh, brave like Esther, for instance, we're confronted with our own inability to be the person that we want to be and our own consistent failings. In fact, any preach on any Bible character or passage that ultimately ends with a message of go away and try harder, it never gets us anywhere. 
Esther chapter 1 illustrates what life without God at the center is like. But the point of the book is that it's a story of the one who, just like Esther will do in chapter 5, goes before the throne on behalf of his people at great cost to himself, pleading the cause of his people. You could say the same about Mordecai, who we'll we'll, we'll meet later, the righteous one who gets vindicated, but we haven't met him or explained his story yet. The book of Esther is full of unexpected reversals, which means that it's pointing to the one who has forever ensured the victory of the people of God over Satan, over sin, over death. It points to Jesus. It's a story ultimately about Jesus. And it says that his gospel is enough for you. It says that in him, you have won the favor of the king upon your life. It says that if you have Jesus, as Andy was so wonderfully testifying to, you have all you need for life and for godliness. That's the the first way to read it. But the the second tip that Chris Ash has commented on is, is to look for the work of God. And he says that because God's actually not mentioned directly in the book of Esther, but his, the story has his fingerprints all, all over it. And it's here where one of the most transformative things that the Bible teaches us to do is to see God in all things around us. It puts it that creation is a pointer to him and what he's like. I'm sure for, for all of us, sometimes we, we can think like that the Christian stuff It's church services on a Sunday, turning up to home group, or whenever we get to witness to a friend about Jesus. But actually, just like the story of Esther, the fingerprints of God are all over our everyday activity. Take this room as an example. There are things in this room that point to who God is. There are some very bright lights blinding me up there. The Bible has a lot to say about light. It joins it with, it, it, try, it, it uses it as the kind of explanation of the glory of God, the magnificent radiant, radiant shining of who he is. It says that in Jesus was the light of life and that light has shone in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Every time we see a light, it, it reminds us of him. Take the welcome that you received on the way in today. Hopefully someone smiled at you, talked to you, maybe used your name, maybe asked you what your week was like. If you uh, came in late, then hopefully that happens after the meeting. We want it to be like that because the welcome reflects the welcome of God who has welcomed us into his family. Think about every time you go through a door in this building, if you go out to Lou or get kids or, or, or even just anywhere, frankly, the Bible has loads to say about doors. Behold, I set before you an open door, Jesus says to his church, that whatever door he opens, no man can shut and vice versa. Take the seats that you are sitting on. It's about giving you comfort, hopefully, and give feedback, amidst structure. Isn't that what God is like? That the God of comfort has come to us to comfort us in our afflictions, that we might comfort others, bringing us into the structure of his kingdom. You you can continue it on. You know, there's beauty and art and architecture and creativity. All of creation points to him. Or maybe that's the stuff, but take what happens in in your typical week. I I would hasten to guess that for most of us, whatever your week looks like, it involves something of bringing order from chaos. So I suspect when we go into, let's say, an office, if, that, if that's true for you, on a Monday morning, and you have the 75 emails that have come in over the weekend, and it feels chaotic and there's tasks floating around, 
You then set about bringing order by answering them and tasking them amidst the chaos. Or if you have kids in your world, maybe order from chaos is about the chaos of a weekday morning and trying to get them dressed and food in them and in their lunchboxes and out the door on time to not get the late mark at school. You're trying to bring order to chaos. Maybe it's prescribing or giving treatment that you're seeing the chaos that has been wrought by a sickness in somebody's body and you're trying to bring order by prescribing treatment. When you do those things, you are joining in with the Bible story that there was chaos in the beginning, that God brought order to it in the beauty of creation, that creation turned its back on God as we decided that our way was better than his way. And now in the gospel, through his son, who empowers his people, we are bringing order, the order of the kingdom of God to the world once again. Every time you go into your workplace, every time you do what God has called you to do, you are bringing order from the chaos of the world around. And it's here where I just think there's some such helpful examples of um, people, just people in the life of grace. You know, God has called me to do this. I think of Alice Bunce, who's an anesthetist. I think I've got that right, haven't I? Yeah, I know not everybody knows what that is, but you can come and ask, ask Alice afterwards. Just uh, the way Alice testified, God has called me to be an anesthetist. So I walk into the hospital and I serve Jesus by doing my work. And like Phil Harper, God has called me to be involved in the management of one of the NHS trusts. And he steps into that hospital and he brings the kingdom of God by how he is and who he is, by bringing order from chaos. His fingerprints are all over your week, just as they're all over the story of Esther. But the second thing to note is that Esther reveals our hollow worlds. And in the, the book of Esther, two kingdoms get contrasted. You get the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. I refer to them at the start. I want to spend the rest of this message here. And um, let me unpack this a little little history note, which I I think this is fascinating to explain what is going on in Esther chapter 1. Right here, that Desi's going to pop up, you have about a 1,000 years of world history summarized extremely uh, succinctly into the world empires that have dominated since uh, about uh, just before 1,000 BC or whatever. And you can, um, you, you can kind of chart it by seeing uh, the story of, of the people of God in, in these times as well. So people of God into what's rough, roughly equivalent to modern-day Israel, and um, uh, the parent of Yellow 45 isn't to do with world history, just, just to clar- <laughs> clarify that uh, in my be, you know, who knows what momentous event has happened out there, Punami or whatever, but um, there we go. <laughs> um, so the, the people of God are, are in, in the land roughly equivalent to Israel. The Assyrian Empire arises and they go and steal uh, the people from the northern part of that and they get disbanded all across the world and we don't hear loads more about them. Possibly they become the Samaritans of the New Testament, that's not uh, 100% clear. But that Assyrian Empire gets taken by the Babylonian Empire and, um, and they go and, and they, um, uh, they take the people in the southern part, uh, it's called Judah by, by this point, and they carry the people of God off into exile in a place called Babylon. And, uh, but that empire gets taken by the Persian Empire. And, and the first king of that, Cyrus, on, on coming to power, says to the Jewish people, right, you can go back to the land now if you want. You can go back to Jerusalem. And some of them start to make their way back, but others of them don't. They stay kind of dotted around the world. And it's here where the story of Esther lands 
The Persian Empire has come up. Some of the Jews have gone back, but some of them haven't. And they're still here in Susa, the capital, uh, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. But what you'll see from that is that they've got this looming kind of up-and-coming threat of the Greek Empire that's to come. And then the Greeks in time ended up getting taken by the Romans, and that's where we find New Testament history. The point is that in the story of Esther, the Persian Empire is massive. It's world-dominating. In fact, we've, we've got a map of it um, up here. And uh, I put that up just to show you that kind of, it, like the scope of it is enormous. But you see at the very kind of western point of that, where the green runs out and the sort of whitish thing starts, that's where Greece is. That's where Athens is. That's where the, this big Greek empire kind of is up and coming. That's where their threat is. It, it even talks about um, the, the scale of the empire in verse 1 of the text. It says that Ahasuerus reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That's the, the modern equivalent of Pakistan to northern Sudan in, in modern terms. But they're facing war against the Greeks. The guy previous to our... Um, Ahasuerus here, Darius, has tried to defeat Athens, and he has failed. So the new king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, has, has come to the throne and basically is trying to get his empire ready to go again at Athens, trying to take it that they might dominate the world. And, and so what he does is he gathers the bigwigs in his empire, and it's where verse 3 explains it. It says uh, in the third year of his reign, he gives a feast for all his officials, all his servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Well, he showed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. What's he doing? He's trying to rally support for this war that he wants them to go on. And he's doing it by showing them all his resources, his money, his possessions, his power. Later, he will try and bring out his beautiful wife as a trophy. The point is, it feels impressive. It looks lavish. We heard it in verse 6, didn't we? White cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. It appeals. He's saying, you can have some of this if you do as I ask, if you go with me on this walk. It's not really any different to how 21st century advertising works, is it? In a world where wealth seems impressive, where expertise gives you one up on people, where sex appeal gives you power, where reputation gives you influence, can sound attractive. And ultimately, because deep, deep down, there's something of the goodness of God in all of those things that are referred to. But when those things become an end in themselves, it's just a veneer. Chris gave me that word this week. I think it's so helpful, like a, a front, a, a covering. It's used loads in dentistry. And, and, and I think the description is fascinating for describing the world around us. A wafer-thin, custom-made shell of, in this case, tooth-colored material designed to cover the surface and improve the appearance. That's the kingdom of this world. An alluring front, an enticing facade, false charm but ultimately nothing of worth underneath. And you can see it in the text. 
You, know, you have this impressive banquet taking place and then Vashti refuses to come and be um, paraded as a trophy. You, know, you don't get to treat me like that. That's in verse 12. And then you find out what, that the king's power is actually not what it seems, that his reputation is being harmed. And mass panic ensues amongst his advisors from verse 13 onwards, which is where we stopped reading the text. Because the true nature of this king and this kingdom is being seen. The veneer is being removed. And they scramble around from verse 13 onwards. They say, what, what shall we do? And so they try to further assert their power. And they use compulsion. They use guilt. They, use, they blame Vashti rather than just accepting that really they've not got it together. And actually what happens is that rather than shutting the incident down, they end up broadcasting it all across the empire with an edict, a kind of proclamation. His, his have it described in verse 19. If it please the king, this is an advisor speaking, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her position to another who's better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mermucan, one of his advisors, proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. It would be farcical. Their actions would be comical even if it weren't true of the nature of the kingdom of this world. Let me give you a couple of recent examples. I was channel hopping the other week and um, came across a documentary about Robbie Williams, the famous son of Stoke-on-Trent, where I'm from. My uh, mate's dad was his postman growing up. His parents live pretty near my parents. Pretty much best buddies. We've never met. And he was talking about the Nebworth gigs that he did in 2003, where over the course of three nights, he, he played and sang to um, 375,000 people in total, having recently signed a, a recording contract, and this is back in 2003, remember, for around 100 million pounds, it was reported. He was at the height of his fame, height of his appeal, height of his reputation. He infamously boasted, I have become rich beyond my wildest dreams. And he was reflecting on these gigs and on this record deal. And he said, when they finished, I went back um, into my house and I, I shut the door and I thought, we can't get any better than that. So that's my purpose over. I'm, I'm done with. He talked about how embarrassed he was about the wealth boast how he hardly leaves his house now, how he feels socially awkward. He said, if, if I've met you and been off with you, I'm sorry, I'd probably just scared. He had everything, and yet it was so hollow. I'll take a, a, another example of the veneer of the world. I had um, a, a Christian friend who recently got invited uh, onto an um, Equality and Diversity Day, which um, actually, at its root, is, is a Christian idea, like the idea that all people have dignity and worth and value because they are made in the image of God is, is one of Christianity's biggest influences on, on Western society. Quite simply, before Jesus came along, it was not like that at all. 
But the invite was issued, it said it was for anyone who identifies as belonging to a diverse group. Which is an utterly bizarre definition, isn't it? But is that diverse in relation to your group or in relation to everybody else, in which case isn't that everybody in some sense? And it betrays the utter confusion at trying to define identity in our nation when we insist that it's the individual that decides it for themselves. And no wonder there's been a huge downturn in our nation's mental health that's accompanied this trend with a burden on our shoulders like defining our entire existence, meaning, and identity. Some of these so-called Western values don't seem to be quite as watertight as society might make out. That the news is full of battles between different protected characteristics or democratic values like freedom of speech. We find in our world that equality is desired except when it seems to affect the individual. And we hear people say things like, oh, well, the world's gone mad. And sort of commenting slightly older culturally uh, with political correctness or perhaps more kind of modern terms like everything's just so woke. We see inclusion promoted so long as we believe certain exclusive things. We see a proud, even pr aggressive promotion of these values. But just like Xerxes in, in Esther chapter 1, we see anger and panic when their fragility is shown or when people don't do what the culture says they're supposed to. And the reason that it's like this, the reason that the world around us is how it is, is because fundamentally it has made itself its own God. That it wants the kingdom without the king. That's why life in Esther 1 is so bad, so farcical. That's why we see the power plays, the manipulative behavior, the degradation of women like Vashti, or, or even worse as we look around our news cycles. But fortunately for us, a far superior story is offered. And this is the last thing, which is that Esther gives a better way. Esther gives a better way. You see, the Bible is one big joined up story. It's full of common threads from beginning to end, ultimately all pointing towards Jesus and his kingdom. And so also here in the world of Esther chapter one, we look forward by contrast to a better kingdom being displayed. Not just in the rest of the book, though we will begin to see the way that um, God works to save his people, but actually in the whole Bible story. Because what you've got going on here in Esther chapter one is a banquet held by a king in his palace with an extensive guest list that turns sour when he invites his bride to join him and he ends up commissioning his officials to tell the story so that all the world might obey him. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins, we too are invited to a banquet, a rich and eternal feast of the goodness of God by a powerful yet kind king who has humbly given himself to his people. Just like Xerxes' palace, his home is described with golden vessels and silver hangings, with precious stones, with the, the purest of colors and the finest of materials. 
You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it in in the tabernacle, the portable temple. You see it in the temple itself. You see it in the New Jerusalem at the end of the story as heaven and earth join together. God forever dwelling with his people. And actually Xerxes' palace here is just a less good imitation of the dwelling place of God. His guest list is every tribe, tongue, and nation invited to the feast, not just to, not to impress them ahead of a war, but because the king is already impressed with his people. His favor is already guaranteed. The battle is already won. That's why he invites us, his brides, to join him. Resplendent, pure, and spotless as she is. Because he laid down his life for her. His commission is not on the basis of anger, but of love. It's to tell the world that they can come to this feast too. The story told is also one of the king's humiliation. But on a cross, broken, beaten, scorned, so that we might be free and now gloriously raised to life. And folks, that's why our obedience to God is different. Because he's not a tyrant suppressing his people but it's the obedience of faith, as Paul put it in Romans 1. It's a response of love, having been wowed and rescued and changed by him. Because just as the actions of the one man here, Xerxes, had such devastating effects, so now the actions of the one man, Jesus Christ, have undone all that Xerxes' kingdom stood upon. It's beautiful, it's glorious. And so the question is, which kingdom will you live for? Whose values does your life reflect? Is it the hollow way of the world? Or is it the beautiful story of the kingdom of God? We have to decide this question every time we come to a major crossroads in our life. Every time we make a big decision. Are we living for the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? You might just have moved to Nottingham recently. You have to decide this question in a place where you're not known as much as you were in your previous context. Am I going to live for the kingdom of this world or am I going to live for Jesus? Who is it that we appeal to in our hour of need? Is it Jesus or is it worldly pleasures? Because we can succumb to this hollow world, its attractive veneer, or we can resolve that because we have Jesus, We have the greatest treasure that we will ever find in the whole of life. We have all that we need for life and godliness because he's done it all. 